Cliffcentral.com. Welcome to the Renegade Report. Good day, Ramon. Good day, um, John Robbie Jr. How are things today? Yeah, you never lose that moniker. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's okay. Uh, can't complain as always. Things are going well. White people can't complain in general. With well, I mean that goes without saying. But we're in our own echo chamber, so it's fine. All right, come. Let's uh, introduce the guest. Introduce the guest. Yeah, when they're on Skype, you get all <laughs> tense about life. Uh, right, so. Today we have none other than Gareth von Onselin. Uh, I'm sure most of you will be very familiar with a lot of the columns he writes. Uh, he is a columnist for Business Day. He is also a reporter with the Sunday Times. Um, Gareth, how are you doing? I'm still doing very well. I hope you guys are doing well. Yeah, we're good. Thanks. There we go. We got you. Uh, right. So thanks for joining us. Uh, lots to discuss. Good morning. You want to get going? So, uh, Gareth, so, I mean, you're one of the better known columnists in this country, I would argue, um, especially for your business day columns. Um, <clears throat> I know that you used to work for the DA, and I think, I believe Gavin Davis called you an embittered party hack, uh, a couple of years ago, because you seem to be quite, uh, quite strong, uh, on the DA in terms of, of their principles and, and things like that. Um, so you yourself, you see yourself as a liberal. Uh, what do you believe that the DA is still is still liberal as you expected, or are they turning a bit more populist? Um, yeah, the DA is in a complex place at the moment, and I think it's torn a bit between its um, liberal heritage and its desperate desire to be able to draw in more black voters, which has led to this kind of tension between. Uh, you know, pragmatism and principle, and on a number of issues, um, from policy issues like um, black economic empowerment or affirmative action through to more, um, you know, issues designed to to make the party resonate better with black voters, ostensibly like the signing up of King Dalland Lebo. There are a whole lot of issues which suggest it's not quite sure where the line in the sand is anymore. Um, and, yeah, I'm, I'm hard on the DA, but no harder than I am on anyone else. Um, I'm the majority of my columns, I'd say, as much as 80% actually focus on ANC. So the DA is not a mainstay of the kind of stuff that I write, but it's part of the political spectrum, and I try to be as fair to it as I, as I am to the other parties. There's, there's this disconnect between um, somehow white voters are somehow liberal, but black voters aren't. Like, why is there that dichotomy, which is, I would argue, probably false? But why does the DA believe that exists? I don't think the DA sees it like that. The DA is not um, like any political party. It doesn't approach voters from a strictly ideological point of view. Uh, it makes an offer to the voters, which it will frame in things like its manifesto and its policy. Um, it'll do 
market research to identify which voters are available to the offer that it makes, and then it will pursue those voters. Um, but I, it doesn't pursue it in terms of, you know, are you a liberal or not a liberal? It's just it's just not the way in which you sell politics to, to the electorate. All right, so... But you you say that they are kind of chasing votes essentially. They, they and I, I tend to agree with you. They've they've sort of they're moving away from liberal principles to try get the sort of proletariat to 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 vote for them. Um, you've you've written quite a lot. You were relatively critical of of Helen Ziller um, in in many of the things she did and said. Um, and you aren't convinced by uh, Musi Maimani. Where do you think they are? Sort of today in uh, in their goal to kind of well they would like to be the ruling party. Well, that's a very important question, um, one which uh, the your boss failed to ask Mr. Maimani at the gathering, um, which I thought was one of the weakest cross examinations I've ever seen uh, of a political leader. But I mean that is the key question, the one that you've just put is. You know, where does the DA stand in relation to this upcoming election? And, and for me, the answer is, if it fails to win another metro outside of Cape Town, there's a serious fundamental problem, not just with the DA, because you can hardly fault it for trying to do everything it can in its power to extend its vote, but with the nature of the opposition project in South Africa. And the consequences, if it fails to win uh, another metro outside Cape Town, I think, are going to be very serious. There's going to, for the first time, be a coherent um, set of problems uh, with Musi Maimani's leadership, uh, around which, over time, uh, a faction can mobilise. At the moment, the party's um, marked by the fact that it, you know he was sort of elected on the back of this tidal wave of 90% support, and there's no real alternative inside the party to him. I think one will start to develop if they fail to win. Secondly, there's every chance that uh, a smaller factional party might break away, a liberal party, um, and just say, look, uh, we need a safeguard for liberal values in South Africa. We're never going to really win power, but we need that kind of check and balance in society, and the DA is not offering it anymore. Uh, And thirdly, there's going to have to be a very serious discussion about what kind of opposition works in South Africa because uh, the DA would have reached something of a watershed moment. And if in this environment with this president and the ANC in this condition, it cannot grow outside of the Western Cape, that is a a very serious and fundamental problem. So that's where I think the party is and it's, it's treacherous time for it. So all sort of depends on what happens come uh, August 4th. Yes. Well, you see, the thing is this, is that, I mean, the DA has now for, if the DA doesn't win another metro outside of Cape Town, this will be the third election in a row in which it's made an offer or ostensible offer of being able to win power outside of the Western Cape. Um, There was, uh, you know, in 2014, there was massive talk about them winning Gauteng and going to get 30%. They failed to deliver on that uh, in the... Uh, local government elections before that in 2011, there was uh, talk, although less fundamental, about them winning some other metros. They failed to do that. So this will be the third election in a row in which they haven't won something in which they said they would, or at least created the expectation amongst voters that they would. And, you know, what happens to voters over time is that 
the offer just becomes less credible. And opposition parties like the DA rely massively on differential turnout in local government elections. It gives them a huge advantage over the ANC. And if you denude belief in, in your ability to be able to win, you lose that turnout. And, and over time, I mean, we're talking five or ten years here, it has a, a, very, a very detrimental effect on your ability to be able to compete with the ANC. But the fact that the ANC is such is in such a dire dire straits, as you say, and the DA has well, maybe they will capitalize on that come August. But what, what do you think of the of the um, the way they've gone about doing it? You know, attacking Zuma. I mean, I believe Zuma is the best thing that happened to them, to the DA personally. Uh, and removing Zuma will not will not remove the structural problems with with the government. But what do you think of them attacking Zuma for the past, well, since he's been elected, to be honest? Well, look, to understand what works for the DA, you have to understand first what it is potential voters want from the DA. And, and the party's done a lot of market research into who these people are. There's essentially a pool of around 15% uh, of undecided, alienated black voters uh, and they have a range of things they want to see from a political party. On the one hand, they are fundamentally upset with Zuma, and so it resonates with them to go after him in a big way. But they do not just want you to be critical of Zuma. They need other things to supplement that. They need a sense of uh, national pride uh, that you're invested in the South African project and that you're forward-looking and proactive. They need a certain set of policy requirements that show you have, uh, you know, empowerment and upliftment and uh, opportunity and all those sort of things in your in your staple diet. They need to have a sense that you are representative of them and their interests. But even those things don't work unless you can hold them all together in their mind by making those voters believe that you represent their interests and what they stand for. And that final thing is, is being the DA's biggest hurdle because, and it's been undermined by many of these race controversies and that kind of thing. There are a lot of black voters, while they might agree the DA runs a better show, that they're hypercritical of Zuma and that those black voters de detest Zuma, they don't yet feel that they can trust the DA to look after their best interests. And it's a very difficult thing the DA is trying to do. Um, I mean, the party gets a lot of stick for how it goes about doing it. And sorry, this is a long-winded response to your question, mm, Ramon. Go for it. Um, I do think they focus far too much on Zuma at the expense of being able to demonstrate those other things properly. Um, and you'll see recently that, um, I mean, particularly after the 2009 election, the DA has changed its communication so that it now – Routinely says it's not just Jacob Zuma. He's a product of the ANC. It's the whole party because they had really talked themselves into a hole by going after Zuma so exclusively and absolutely because what you do is you set yourself up for a massive problem. Then if Zuma goes, what have you got left to say to voters? Um, the problem has been solved. And this this has just only started to dawn on the DA in the last six months or so. And they're, they're now trying quite desperately to make it about the ANC as a whole. Um, all right. So, yeah, they, 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 I agree with you. They, they've sort of figured out that just chasing Zoom is probably a bad idea because there's even sort of some rumblings that he might go after August. Uh, I, I don't believe he's, he's, he's ready to, but you never know what happens within the ANC. Um, and we'll get to the ANC. I'm sure you've got good opinions there as well. Um, just want to find out 
you talk about Musi coming into power kind of unopposed. Um, maybe it, he wasn't the right guy at the right time. Uh, what about uh, Lindiwe Mazibuko? Because she seems to kind of make a lot of noise on the sidelines. Uh, she seems to very much be positioning herself as an alternative. Uh, is she is she wanting to come back and take over power? And is she going to be any better? Well, look, I, I'm not going to get into that kind of speculative game. I have no idea what her plans are. Uh, oh, uh, her break... <laughs> I'm afraid I can't help you there. I mean, her break with the party was pretty absolute, although it did boil down to a number of fundamental differences with certain key people, Helen being one of them. Um, And the fact that uh, Helen Zilla is not in the leadership position anymore might well provide an opportunity for her to respond, but for her to return. But, I mean, you have to look at this also from the DA's perspective. In hard practical terms, this is putting aside what's, I mean, in hard political terms, Musi Maimani currently has a sort of 80% uh, support wave behind him in the party. Why he would now introduce uh, effectively an unofficial leader of a separate faction into the party would be a bit of mad politics on his part. And I can't see a door being open for her, at least not in the immediate future, um, you know, if the DA wins another Metro in the same way as Musi Maimani's reputation and, and the DAs would be seriously harmed by a failure to do that, it would be massively augmented by a win. Uh, there might be a confidence enough to bring her in, but I can only see, and this is down the line, you know, I'm thinking 2019 or as a MEC or something like that, she could get in via a government or some position like that, but that's all on the presumption that she wants to return at all. I mean, she might go join the private sector and fall in love with Money. You know, making millions. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's let's assume that uh, it's August fifth. Uh, they win. They win PE. Um, or put it this way, they they've won a large percentage in PE, and they need to go into a coalition um, with someone like. I imagine the UDM wouldn't be the end of the world. But uh, what if it was the EFF? What do they do then? <laughs> Yes, this is a, I mean, that is another massive conundrum for the party. Um, it's, it's a very difficult question to answer, and I, and I don't know if I have the answer. I mean, I can answer for myself personally. Um, there was a point maybe six months ago where I, I was of the opinion, well, not of the opinion, I mean, I could understand the approach that in order to keep the ANC out, it was necessary to do a deal with the EFF to govern in PE, but... The kind of stuff that the EFF's been saying, the kind of stuff that's housed in their local government manifesto, I, I'm steadily moving towards the position that I, I just don't think you can do it in principle or in practice, and it would be a bad idea to form a coalition with them. That's generally the way I'm headed. But, you know, I'm not the DA. I, I just imagine that they're having the exact same kind of um, conundrum because there are fundamental black and white ideological and policy breaks between these two parties that I, I can't see how they can be reconciled. Um, and it's all a matter of what's sellable to the voters. I mean, I did some superficial polling on my Twitter polling account, which is by no means scientific, but the kind of questions you want to put to people are, is it worth 
um, going into a coalition with the EFF in order to keep the ANC out. In other words, it's the lesser of two evils. And, and would people buy that? Um, and depending on people's response to that, I think that is the key sort of strategic factor that the DNA will, will try to bear in mind, whether it is sellable. Um, people are so appalled by the ANC that they are willing to stomach an EFF coalition. Um, but all this stuff is the polity of politics of you know coalitions and pragmatism. I mean, in principle, I, I can't see where these two can meet anywhere. But pragmatically, if they do go with the EFF, um, you give them whatever they want. You just keep finance in the DA, and then that's a good way to do it, I would think. Give the EFF arts and culture and who knows what else, but keep finance in, in the hands of the DA, one would argue. Well, look, there are a number of possibilities. I mean, the EFF has spoken about what it's called the coalitions of a special type, uh, of which it's yet to properly define, but that's the sort of EFF label that you you worry about because you don't know exactly what's going on in their head. But they could, for example, say, well, we only want the speaker. Um, we don't actually want to be formally part of your government at all. We just would like the speaker. You see, from the EFF's perspective, um, I can't see any benefit really from them getting into government because they're not the only way they can get in is through a coalition they're not going to govern outright anywhere and they'll never be able to deliver what they promise well there's that but more importantly um they 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 will be massively restrained by government they they Look, I mean, the EFF doesn't really care if it's restrained or not, but it will have an effect. It will generate bad news stories when they're contradictions. It will cause them a bit of a brand problem because you can't behave the way they do outside of government, inside government. So there's a massive benefit to them to just going, look, as a matter of principle, we're not going to enter any coalition governments in 2019, in, tw- in 2016, and we'll wait three years until 2019 and then see where we stand. Um, yeah. Right, onto something now completely different from politics. You wrote a column, okay, after, after we did that little, um, fundraiser for the waitress at Ops Cafe, the one that was yeah. reprimanded by Mr. Kwabe. You, you wrote a column that said, you know, every rand is like a fuck you to Rose Must Fall. And you were the only one to, to actually say that. Um, what made you think that people would want to donate to the tip based on a dislike of Rose Must Fall as opposed to actually just helping out a waitress, if you know what I mean. Well, look, that was my analysis. I mean, I can't say definitively. One would have to look at all your donors and talk to them. Um, But the feeling I got um, from watching people who interact with you and who interacted with that particular issue was, uh, you know, a general and widespread distaste and disdain for roads must fall and what's what it seemed to embody. And and a lot of the problems that people had had with Rhodes Must Fall, you, I mean, you must remember that the run-up to that incident involved paintings being burnt and violence, and there was a court finding against them. There was a whole slew of um, critical uh, sort of criticisms of, of the Rhodes must fall, must fall movement that had come to bear in the public mind. And I think this incident for a lot of people captured it, and it was sparked by... Um, just the arrogant sort of disdain of of the, the way in which the tip was denied and, and the attitude towards the waitress. 
Um, so I think it, you know it became a metaphor in the same way that the spear is a is was it became a metaphor for um, you, you know Zuma's disdain for South Africa or even for Rhodes must fall students Rhodes must fall members themselves how the Rhodes statue became a metaphor for colonialism and oppression and all those kind of things the the behaviour of of those guys from the movement in that cafe became a metaphor for people's anger at the movement. I think, I think this was the first time that people were actually able to show their distaste and not in a, in a public way, but most of the donations were, were anonymous. So we have no idea who donated either, but we do find that the media, that Rose must fall was the media darling, you know, for a whole year and then fees must fall and all those other movements came up and most of the media just went along with it because they don't know anything about economics or, or much else. But, and then, on Twitter, for example, like if I made a disparaging remark about Rose Must Fall, like I was attacked for days and days and days. Uh, so I do believe that this was a way for people to actually show their distaste and their disdain by actually not being public at all, by just voluntarily giving whatever they could to the tip. But what do you think about the, the media? Especially, okay, but going back to that, but we can talk about racism in the same way, especially on social media. So, most people know, Jonathan and I, we have data to support our views. Racism exists. It's not a massive problem for many people in this country, uh, based on some polling data that we have. Um, what, what do you think, why is race a big issue? Because it's an election year? I mean, because people are, are being paid to write about it, they got books to sell, or is it actually a, an issue? And we may be slightly wrong on this. No, I think race is an issue, and I think it is objectively a very important issue in South Africa, and I think racism is a problem in South Africa, um, a significant one. Um, the, the problem is, you know, John Stewart, um, who I like a great deal, um, he's um, did a series of programs when there were these, uh, a whole slew of, of sort of cops, assaults and deaths and murders of innocent black Americans. And um, the whole point of his thing, I mean, he would often have a go, I mean, he counterbalance his stuff against Fox News, who would sort of be in absolute denial that there was any kind of race problem. I'm, I'm not suggesting you guys are Fox News. But he, he um, and he would um, Try to show that, you know, it's actually accumulation of events that's fueling more events and making the problem bigger. Now, there's some of that in South Africa. I mean, there is a, a, a number of events. I mean, some of them are blown out of all proportions. Some of them are just wrong. A large number of them are legitimate. And I think there is a lot of legitimate anger in South Africa, given people's history and so on and so forth. The difference in South Africa is that because this whole issue has been so badly dealt with, because there's so much repression and anger, is that there are a whole lot of incidents which are either not important in the grand scheme of things or pale in comparison to other issues and other economic, social, political ways in which problems of uh, you know a lack of reconciliation or, or good race relations can be better addressed are blown out of all proportions, sometimes completely wrong. Um, and some of the nastiest characteristics of uh, defaming people and 
getting stuff wrong are all done under this barrier, barrier of, of this banner of racism and um, all the various labels that accompany it. And it, it does so much damage to being able to have a proper, reasonable conversation with it. There's nothing. And people then are forced into corners and you're forced to take sides. Is this racist or is it not racist? And you can't. It, it just completely hampers, divides, and, and alienates conversation. It's almost impossible to have a reasonable conversation about race in South Africa. It's so divisive. Um, and and it, that way it becomes a vicious circle. I mean, how do you how do you slow things down to be able to have a conversation, a meaningful one? It's, it's very difficult. And movements like Roads Must Fall and the behavior of certain commentators who, you know, make the smallest things equivalent to the biggest, most heinous crimes. It's just impossible to have a reasonable discussion in this environment. And, and that's my real problem with it all. Yeah, I, I, look, I think that's reasonable. Uh, uh, our sort of issue and, and where Ramon's coming from is, as you mentioned, there are far greater social ills uh, to deal with. It's not that racism doesn't exist. It's that people, and this is once again from some data, people have bigger problems with uh, housing and bigger problems with uh, economics and, and employment and, and, and all those kinds of things that affect daily lives far more than whether, you know, an estate agent or two uh, are racists. Um, it's, it, I think really our, our, our push is to say, well, our headlines are, are dominated by these things on a weekly basis. Uh, you know, last week we the race racist rant that was that was kind of everything everyone was talking about. It's still ongoing, I suppose. Uh, you know, we'll wait for that woman to get her hundred and fifty thousand rand fine. Um, but but it, it's 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 so small in comparison to some of the other greater issues that are being dealt with. Um, or do you think that they all feed into each other? No, I mean, I agree 100%. It's, you see, it's very difficult to gauge these things on a most or less important thing. A lot of the surveys that you're referring to, and it's, and it's actually replicated in every survey, every, every socio-political survey that asks people what is the biggest issue facing you, the top 10 issues will almost inevitably exclude race. The economy will always be number one, education, Whatever, and even, but the thing is that even if race comes in at number 12, that doesn't mean emotionally it registers at number 12 in people's lives. Because people can have multiple feelings at the same time. It's just that those things are more urgent for them. Now, that is a very important and valuable point, and I'm not trying to downplay that. I mean, the fact that it's urgent would make you think that much of our conversation in South Africa should be aimed at those things and addressing them whereas they're distracted by a whole lot of stuff that is less urgent. But it doesn't delegitimate it as unimportant. I mean, we're saying the same things here. Um, it's just that, I don't know, it, it seems almost as as if in order to get that stuff, race on the national agenda, everything has to be turned into a sort of hyper-real crisis of, of monumental proportions. Um, and look... Here's another way of looking at it. What in a, in a normal society, you know, quote unquote, um, would constitute average amounts of prejudice across the board? You know, people that are homophobic or racist or bigoted in some other way. I mean, there's no society that doesn't have this kind of stuff. And 
that's not an excuse to say it. I'm just saying that there is such a thing as a relatively normal amount of level in a, a relatively healthy society. It is impossible to distinguish in South Africa what these kind of normal aberrations are as opposed to them being indicative of a fundamental problem because there is no attempt to disaggregate between uh, you know, those sort of broader trends and attitudes as opposed to just identifying isolated incidents and then projecting that onto everyone as if that is representative of the real broader trends and and, and patterns of behavior. And, yeah. It's a bit like, sorry, it's body. It's a bit like the, the Zapiro cartoon of a few weeks back, the organ grinder type cartoon that he did. It was a very average cartoon. The metaphor was very worn, very well known. And then he gets, you know, gets into hot water for that with the same commentators I think we were referring to earlier. He's a satirist. Like, who gives a shit what he draws? And, okay, yes, it could be considered as racist. That's fine. But for goodness sake, there's like many other things to talk about and discuss and, and try to solve in this country rather than a satirist. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's a very good example of the problem because, you know, here's something that wasn't racist. I mean, it's a well-established metaphor uh, intended to illustrate a, a malfunctioning political relationship between the MPA and the president. Um, but it is interpreted uh, and, you know, people fell into two camps, those that said it's byproduct was racism and those that said it was actually intentionally racist. Um, but the point is there was no one amongst the, those commentators that uh, advocate for, uh, you know, greater sensitivity and awareness of racism and, and those kind of problems in South Africa to say, listen, this isn't actually a racist metaphor. And I understand the way that a lot of people feel and respond to this, and that's a legitimate response um, and you're entitled to it, but it, it doesn't make the cartoon what you want it to be. Um, no one stood up for what the cartoon was actually trying to do, and that's the problem in South Africa. You know, the, the outrage reaches a crescendo, either fueled by or then in a bandwagon where people get onto it, but no one ever goes, just stop. We can have do both things. This isn't a binary universe. You can legitimately feel aggrieved and upset by that um, cartoon, and that is understandable, and you're not wrong for doing that. But you can't project your own feelings onto the cartoonist. And this cartoon was not done with that intention. And the cartoonist perhaps should learn to be more sensitive to your responses or not, depending on your views on satire and Zapira. You as a public need to learn to also appreciate the perspective from which satire comes. Otherwise, there's a problem in South Africa. As a liberal, though, you not feel that the reaction sometimes goes, and not sometimes, I, I think on, on all of these incidents in the last few months, uh, just goes beyond what is a reasonable and rational level. Uh, I'll give you an example with this latest um, woman who was filmed uh, after she gets smashed and grabbed and she makes a whole bunch of racial comments or not racial, racist comments. Um, uh, on Twitter on the weekend, they were doxing her. So they were telling people where she lived. Um, they were giving out her telephone number. Um, and there is no other purpose to doing that other than to 
cause people to harass the person. Um, so I just I just wonder how far does it go? Do we get to a point where someone does something racist, someone who is mentally uh, unwell decides um, is offended by it and goes to the point of actually driving to a person's house and killing them? Uh, and then uh, there will be people in our society who will justify that as a rational and reasonable response. I, I just feel like the, and I think you have hinted and alluded to this, uh, certainly in, in, in that you're saying our conversation is completely whack and, you know, it doesn't have to be binary and, and over the top. Um, but I, I just, it just seems to me that, that we are, our response and the reaction to this, this kind of stuff is, is, is just nowhere. It, it doesn't make sense. Am I, am I not seeing the feelings that people have? No, I think you're absolutely right. Look, I mean, as ever in South Africa, you need to look at things in a bigger context. I mean, we have a quite a substantial, uh, I don't want to call it culture because that sounds sort of all-encompassing, but, uh, you know, there are large swathes of South African society that believe in mob justice of one sort or another. Um and that's partly due to a collapse of the criminal justice system. It's partly due to that's just the way things have been done for a long period of time, um, partly due to our history and so on and so forth. Um, but, you know, in townships, you regularly read stories in the press of people that have been stoned to death. Um, huge numbers. I mean, there must be 100 to 150 people, that, if not more, that are killed like this every year. Yeah, there's and plenty, plenty of mob of mob violence in the townships. I can tell you from having treated it. It's uh, it's it's it, it, it essentially an epidemic. Yes, and um, you know there are other forms of of mob justice. It's not particular to uh, townships. I mean, it varies in different kinds of ways. But I think that this thing on Twitter of you know outing people with their addresses and their family names and their careers and where you can get hold of them at work. It, is a kind of mob justice of a sort. Um, and it's, yeah, it's not fair. I mean, however egregious, you know, this woman seems like the most appalling individual um, who had this rant and said all these mad, appalling things. Um, well, but that's worst of way. all, she's an estate agent. I mean, that's the, that's the first problem. And, and that's a heinous crime in itself. Yeah. yeah. The estate agent business needs some serious PR work. Um yeah, I mean, that's not the way you deal with justice, you know. She she must face uh, whatever consequences are coming her way, and I'm sure there will be no shortage of them. Um, but people shouldn't take that kind of stuff into their own hands. By all means, be outraged on Twitter, you know, tweet her to death. That's all. That stuff's all within people's rights. But when you start, um, you know, taking taking it beyond that, that's where you get legal problems and, and the sense of justice is, is undermined. How, how do you feel on her her rights to be racist? So she's uh, she's 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 allowed to say things. Uh, the whole concept around, um, firstly that that freedom of speech. Secondly, that uh, thoughts aren't crimes, and um, you know that uh, that that words don't actually hurt people. Well, look, I'm a I'm a constitutionalist, so my. Well, I'm not a constitutionalist, but I, I mean, I agree with the Constitution on freedom of speech um, broadly in South Africa. You know, if you um, partake in hate speech, which is very particular parameters and, and a, a desire to incite violence, and actually not just incite violence, people misunderstand that, it's to incite, incite immediate violence. So in other words, 
You have to say something that's hateful that immediately results in someone else attacking someone. You can't say something hateful and then two weeks later someone does something. That doesn't even qualify as hate speech in and of itself. Um, outside of that, people can say whatever they want. doesn't mean it's acceptable. doesn't mean anyone Absolutely. has to like what they've said. But, you know, people can say what they want and the marketplace of ideas must deal with them. Um, look, that's people will say in South Africa that's idealistic because it gives room to bigots. And given our history, it's it's a very cold, callous approach to freedom. But actually, uh, I would say in practice, in many instances, the opposite applies. You know, the, the disproportionate amount of abuse that people like Sapira get for a cartoon like that, with people calling him to be shot and killed in the street um, – suggests that, and you can abuse the right to, to freedom of speech by just making a mockery of it. Uh, and I think when a lot of people get outraged about things that are not legitimately racist, they, they do as much damage to the right to freedom of speech than those who abuse it by being prejudiced and bigoted and, and hateful. Well, a good reason for having freedom of speech is to for bigots to be you know, public, um, that, that, that's the role as well. So it's, it's to protect, protect bigots from their, from themselves, really. So if you are a, a racist and you say it publicly, okay, people know you're racist and now you'll have, there'll be consequences to that. If, if you criminalize race, like all these political parties have jumped on the bandwagon, unfortunately, after Penny Sparrow, um, how do you know who's a bigot or not? Because they won't be allowed to, to, to say it. And second of all, do you think not being able to say it publicly will make them less racist uh, I somehow doubt that yeah that, look that's a mad law um, and I mean I don't I, the DA seems to be backtracking a bit on on their initial thank goodness I think initially said that he would support it wholeheartedly I suspect as ever they're going to come up with some kind of middle of the way position half in half out um, but the, I mean another it's not just this law their the problems the Equality Court um, rules governing hate speech, which include, I don't know, mad stuff like offending religion or stuff like that. Mm. It's a complete violation of the Constitution. I mean, someone yeah. needs to take that to court because the rules that govern the Equality Court's definition of freedom of speech are profoundly problematic. They conflict so, with, with freedom of speech in the Constitution. <laughs> Absolutely. Um and they, they totally run against the spirit of, of free speech. And it's Indeed. only in South Africa can you have a court called the Equality Court that is actually violating the Constitution. <laughs> it's just mad. So let's talk about your Sorry, I cut Romano. Yes, there you go. So, so you used your freedom of speech to have a very interesting article about initiation in, in the cultural sense in South Africa. So... I'll just read your words. You just you just said it was a, a patriarchal and deeply sexist practice in a in a rights based society. Why would you? I mean, I know why you say that, but uh, do you still stand by that? Yeah. Look, I mean, there needs to be a bit of context to that quote. Um, the first point is that initiation as a practice is sort of ubiquitous across. Society. I mean, you get it in rugby locker rooms, you know, in Stellenbosch, people tarred and feathered. There is a particular form of initiation, uh, and, and I stand against all those forms. I mean, I think initiation is just appalling. 
Um, but there's a particular form of initiation uh, that's practiced uh, in the rural Eastern Cape, uh, in particular in some other provinces, um, which is particularly harsh and particularly well entrenched into cultural norms and values in those societies. Um, and it's deeply problematic. It has at its heart, uh, you can't call it physical abuse because it is um, voluntary, but, you know, you are circumcised in a sort of not very well policed way. And this is even in the best initiation schools. In the worst ones, you know, it leads to death. Um, there's a whole lot of physical um, duress that you're placed under. There are a whole lot of aspects which those people who undergo the process say are beneficial. You learn a whole lot of stuff, you bond, you do those kind of things. I don't doubt those, but the downsides far outweigh the upsides. And um, the key thing is this, is that there is no... Because anyone can get initiated if they want to. I mean, um, if you really want to go whatever, get your finger cut off or get half your cock cut off or whatever it is that you need to do to be a man, uh, I'm all for that. The, the problem is you have to not then be ostracized and alienated if you opt out. <clears throat> if, if you're in freedom of choice, and, and this is the thing that people in your culture do in order to feel uh, that they are a man and that they have progressed in society, you can't treat people who choose a different path any different. Uh, and this is the whole problem. There is absolutely no attempt by anyone to try to explain that you do not have to go this under stuff and risk death or maiming or a whole lot of horrific consequences and everything will be okay. Is, um, and is, that's my big gripe. Is there any reason that you sort of came across whereby this can't be done in a sterile fashion? So we, we're not going to change... Uh, the fact that, you know, circumcision happens as part of these initiation ceremonies. I, I highly doubt this is the same as trying to uh, stop Jews from, from doing circumcision. Um, but it, it is, why is it that this cannot be done in a safe manner? Well, I, I think it's just access to safe uh, equipment. You know, a lot of it's carried out in rural Eastern Cape, in the felt, in the bush. Um, you know, there's not high-tech medical equipment and but, but there's no objection to it from from the, you know the powers that be the chiefs etc there's no objection to it being done in a in a in a sort of sterile fashion it doesn't take I'm away from the cultural it. side of things i'm just oh no no and governments try to get involved they've set up a whole lot of mobile units to try help uh, they've tried to dispatch people to uh, doctors to oversee the actual circumcision ceremony um which is an interesting phenomenon in itself if you look at the South African state, the degree to which the state uh, and these kind of cultural practices merge and meet in a kind of state-sponsored uh, overseeing role for, for like traditional circumcision. I find that hilarious. Um, but, yeah, no, they have tried to make it sterile, and, and, and a lot of the chiefs and and contra lesser and, and are, are all on board that kind of stuff. So do you have that, um, are you only referring to, to initiation in that sense or is it all circumcision? Like for example, in the Jewish sense, in the Jewish culture, cause I'm anti-circumcision unless someone chooses to be circumcised when they reach, um, adulthood. So, I mean, obviously there's degrees, right? There are degrees of initiation across the world yeah. and some are more, 
for lack of a better word, uh, harmful than others. But would you have the same the same argument against, say, like circumcision in the Jewish culture? Uh, I would, but it wouldn't be as fundamental. I'd be more understanding of it because the person involved is not able to make a choice and whether or not that actual appendage is harmful to them. I mean, in other words, they're losing, you know, there's a medical argument that it is far more beneficial over the long run to um, be circumcised than not to be circumcised. But certainly and, in sub-Saharan Africa, that's a good argument. Yes, and there's evidence to support that and and evidence the other way. It all seems to be a bit undecided. So I, I have less of a problem. I mean, I have no problem even with someone, you know, voluntarily deciding to get circumcised midlife, which, I mean, the Western Cape offers a program where you can get circumcised at any age um, because it argues that the health benefits outweigh the risks. Um, the real problem is... It, which is why it's about culture, is the attitude in which you don't have a choice, that if you want to be accepted, if you want to be a man, and a whole lot of crazy things that accompany this, you need to do this. And if you don't do it, you're, there are going to be severe consequences for you, severely ostracized and, and set out. That's where my real concern lies. And what do you think, what do you make of the argument when, when, when you wrote this, a lot of people actually said, you know, you're not allowed to talk about our culture as a white person. I know it, we know it's a it's a terrible terrible argument, but it's a very pervasive one for some reason. People, you know, the politics have become very personal now. The identity is built into to to what you do. So if you're not gay, you can't talk about the Orlando massacre, for example. So yes. I mean, you received you received a lot of hate for this particular column. Yes. Well, look, you you must also remember that uh, I mean, I didn't. Well, I tried to be as reasonable as possible, but it was very firmly argued. I mean, I, I didn't – there was no ambiguities in the column. Um, and if you have undergone initiation, um, what you're basically saying is, you know, the ceremony that you undertook in order to be a man is a farce. And, and I can perfectly understand why that comes across as insulting and offensive. Um you know, the people feel strongly about these kind of things, hence they're willing to undergo the ceremony in the first place. So you're talking about something in which people have not only invested huge amounts of emotion and, uh, you know, there's massive amount of cultural capital in the practice, um, but they've also literally, um, you know, suffered physically to go through this kind of thing. That said, it wasn't all hate. There was actually a lot of people who said they agree with a lot of black South Africans as well. Um, I mean, I can't tell whether they are people who underwent initiation or didn't undergo initiation, but they that were supportive of the column and agreed that this thing is outdated. The only reason I could have that discussion, I mean, I don't think I, I could have written the column five years ago, but I think the response would have been nuclear, um, is because of the number of deaths each year. I mean, the deaths have delegitimated the kind of untouchable standing that that issue has in the South African public mind uh, and has eroded its its capital um, to the extent that the state has had to try intervene to try save the practice. Um, and so I think it is at least now possible to start having a conversation about that stuff. And that that's very encouraging for me. All right. So maybe let's get it off the initiation side of things. Tell us why you hate Trump so much. Oh, I think he's just the most appalling man, man. Um, I think he is deeply 
prejudiced on a, on a whole lot of, of different levels. Um, I think he is a, a populist and a demagogue. Um, I think he is ignorant, and, I, and I, that's possibly the most dangerous aspect of him, particularly when it comes to things like foreign policy. Um, and in that kind of environment, I think his personality is lends itself to the sort of big man politics that would cause a lot of problems if you were the president of America. Um, and geez, man, a whole range of other reasons. Is, um, uh, is, you know, foreign policy, for example. So arguably you could say, uh, well, you could, you can say factually that Hillary Clinton has way more foreign policy experience, uh, than Donald Trump has. Uh, but some people would say, um, They'd rather elect the guy who isn't hasn't committed any any uh, war crimes uh, versus the one who has. Um, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton being very much part of Obama's uh, administration with a lot of errors in their drone program. Uh, she uh, basically uh, made a lot of mistakes that led to Benghazi and 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 basically American citizens being killed, which they take quite seriously, especially their diplomats. Um, so. You buy any of that argument? Yeah, look, I'm not I'm not the world's biggest Hillary Clinton fan by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and actually, my r- real problem with Clinton is this kind of dynastic politics that happens in America. I mean, you, I can, no one can explain to me why there are 300 million people in America. It so happens that the wife of a former president is the best candidate for president. How is that possible? It's just insane. And the Bushes and the Clintons, this... I really got a real problem with this kind of like unofficial dynasty stuff. Um, my problem with Trump though versus Clinton is this, is that, you know, if Trump is willing to do, take the wall, for example, it's a massive international incident, that wall, if it were to happen, um, for which he's not thought through any of the consequences. John Oliver did a great piece on costing the wall. Uh, and how long it would take to be done, and he went through it in some detail, and just how mad Trump's idea actually yeah, was. Yeah, it was thousands of trucks and something like yes. 30 years or something stupid. But you see, he makes these kind of things, and because they're so attached to his ego, because his ego is so big, he can only ever double down on them. He can't ever have a reasonable discussion or say, okay, well, let's make the wall half as high, or you know, we'll have to pay for it, actually and it won't achieve everything I wanted to, to achieve. It's absolute, it's fundamental, and when when he pressured on it, he doubles it. No, now Mexico will pay for the war. Now, if you take that kind of attitude into foreign affairs, you know, let's bomb this place, uh, and someone comes with a satellite photo that says, uh, actually, uh, this is the wrong place to bomb, this is not the kind of personality that's going to back down on that kind of stuff. And, and in that kind of environment, when you're dealing with other countries, I mean, the wall is a minor example because it's sort of farcical in it, um, but when you're dealing with bombs and guns, that kind of attitude to big fundamental policy decisions about which you are incapable of being flexible or listening to reason, it, it, the consequences are spectacular. Um, so I would keep him very far away from an army and from weapons. Uh, yeah. But, I mean, how, how how much worse can he be than Bush and Obama, right? They're both They're both – uh, very, very quick trigger fingers, uh, both of them. So, and I don't see Trump getting anywhere oh. through Congress, if I'm honest with you. 
yeah, look, I, it's just not a game I'm willing to indulge. Um, but that's me. Yeah, I, I, look, I, 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 I could be wrong. A lot of people have said this that you know they think they'll that he'll surround himself with the right people and the right advisors. Um, I don't think that that's entirely and sort of not not fact based in that um, he's clearly surrounded himself with the right kind of people for a campaign because he's he's winning. So um, or he at least won the Republican nomination that everyone said he would never win. And I, I don't uh, I don't say that that isn't largely based on him and his personality. Uh, but I, I there are people in the background doing things. Um, you know I, I think. Uh, some, from my perspective, a lot of what he does at the moment is playing to the crowd. I, I'm not convinced that uh, that he would necessarily do that as president. But I suppose that's a dangerous. From your perspective, you'd think that's quite a dangerous um, hope to have. Well, look, I'm from a particular school of thought when it comes to politicians, where I actually believe what they say, um, and. It's very weird for a lot of people when they say that because a lot of political analysis is based on the presumption that people do not say what they mean and um, there's some hidden code or they're inferring to stuff. And, I mean, it's not an absolute thing. I'm sure there are occasions when that happens. But for the most part, over time, when viewed in large quantities, politicians largely say what they mean. Jacob Zuma is a great example. I don't think there's any mystery to Jacob Zuma. The guy says what he thinks. Um, you know, he says we want 100% of the vote. That's what he wants. He says I'm not guilty about Nkandla. That's what he thinks. There's not, there's no mystery to the guy. And I, and I think when it comes to Donald Trump, the guy is, says what he means. And, um, you know, when he says we mustn't just bomb ISIS, we must kill all their families and children. That's what the guy thinks. And that's what the guy believes. It's not just posturing. And when he surrounds himself with the best people, I'm sure they're very competent and highly good people. Um, highly good. Jeez, what a terrible phrase. <laughs> very, very competent, excellent people. But um, I, I do not think he will put people uh, around him that will disagree with him. I think they will. He will only choose people that will reaffirm his worldview. Perhaps, but but uh, there is the to be said that you know the the U.S. government, you know, they've got Congress, they've got Senate, they've got the Supreme Court. All of these, uh, the executive is like it is here. It's 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 meant to be controlled. It's, it doesn't have sole power, uh, you know. And then in terms of bombing families and things, you would imagine Joint Chiefs of Staff, which won't really change with his uh, administration. Your, your military advice, your military generals don't change. Um, they would say, well, you can do that, but um, you instantly become a war criminal. Um, so, which would be difficult to defend uh, as we we knew we were killing the children. We did it on purpose, as opposed to what Obama says, which is, I killed the children by mistake, um, yeah, which is at least a defense. Your, your logic is basically that. Sorry, Gareth, I've lost you for a second. One second. I just want to fix it. Uh Go again? Sorry. Sorry, I was just saying... Can you hear me? Uh, yeah, we got you. I was just saying that I, uh, inherent to your logic is the assumption that, okay, there's a madman in the White House, but the American system has a whole lot of checks and balances built into it to hold this guy to account. Is that right? Uh, yeah, but uh, Ramon's already disagreeing. <laughs> okay, but anyway, the point is, why have a madman in the House? 
What is it good says? Who cares about the checks and balances? Just don't have a crazy uh, guy. Well, I would, I would uh, far prefer that they didn't have a madman in the house. Uh, the problem is, is uh, the Americans got themselves here. Now they've got a choice between basically two I, inferior candidates. I mean, I agree with you on the three hundred million people thing. It's, it's, it's absolutely astonishing amongst all the intelligent people that there are in America, uh, and all the competent people that there are that that these are the two that they they get to choose from um yes. but i think uh, i think it's also that a lot of americans are disenchanted with politics and couldn't really be interested and 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 part of the reason why trump gets sort of voted into where he is is because through the primaries if you look at who votes in the primaries uh, it's it's not it it really is appealing to the sort of mass mentality um who are not really thinking and there's not a lot of analysis that necessarily goes into the primaries there's tons more analysis that goes into in, into the final sort of national election I, w- I would suppose the same applies here for example um i know we're very focused on the anc and who they're re- releasing as lists and whatever but i don't know any of these people and i'll probably know a lot more about them once they either are just about to take office or are actually in office um, same kind of logic um, so I, I just think that the, the narrative is, is kind of controlled, um, by idiots in some, in some sense. And although I, I often think that's an unfair way to refer to, to a large group of people who, who, you know, the, the, you can't say the whole country are stupid. They aren't. Yes. Look, I think at the end of the day, Clinton will crush him. Eh? Uh, all right. Well, we'll see. I've uh, already got a wager with someone that Trump's going to win, but already. <laughs> well, it will be an immense pity if she does. Um, but but you must you must admit the one thing about Trump. Like, I don't vote in general. I'm an anarchist. Uh, everyone knows that. But the one thing about Trump is that he is so politically incorrect is the wrong word, but he is so honest. One would say with how he thinks. Uh, that that is very refreshing. I would argue. That's why a lot of people actually look at him and say, oh, you know what? He's not the best guy. He's a bit of a dick. He's a wealthy, terrible businessman. But you know what? He's honest and he doesn't care about what people think about him. And he gives a middle finger to the PC police and whoever else. So that's one benefit of having him. Yes. Uh, look, um, but these, these things, once again, it's, um, you know, he, he can, and he does do that. Um, and says a lot of stuff that other people aren't prepared to say, and, and says it in terms. Actually, what he, he doesn't often say things that other people aren't prepared to say. He just does it in blunter terms. So he's not he's cruder than other people. I wouldn't say more politically correct, um, but he he misses as often as he hits. So you know, whereas one statement will it is commendable for you know calling a spade a spade in the right kind of terms, the next one reveals some kind of bigotry or prejudice. Um, and that's the price that you pay for being authentic. And Julius Malema has got the same problem. Um, you know, the guy's a brilliant, uh, authentic, charismatic personality. But the problem with being authentic is that there's no filters on. And, and in politics, you need a filter because if you just – if you just speak according to whatever impulse comes into your head, you're going to get yourself into all sorts of problems. Um, and Trump does it as so he hits as often as he misses. Is my is my point? Yeah, ideally none of them will win. To be honest, 
But anyway, uh, Gareth, so one last thing before we, we, we finish off. You are, um, you speak a lot about the killings within the ANC itself for positions, um, within the ANC, especially municipal positions. Now just elaborate a bit on that. So is it people competing against each other to be on party lists and then they actually end up, you know, assassinating each other to get there? Is that correct? Yeah. Oh, this is a, I could go on for this about, for this, about this for hours. It's a personal bugbear of mine. I mean, I've been writing articles about these assassinations now. I think I've done six or seven over three years. Um, but it's recently been put on the front pages because primarily the, the, the Mail and Guardian got onto the issue and then there's been some supplementary stuff and they've tied it all to, to, to an election and said, well, the reason why there's an upsurge in this stuff is because of precisely the things that you said. Um, people competing for positions and, and the, the money that comes with being a councillor at local government level. Um, and yes, I think that is largely responsible for a great deal of the stuff. The other big contributing factor, though, is factionalism. Uh, I think there are a number of people that are assassinated um, because they, you know, rubbed someone up the wrong way or voted the wrong way or pushed the wrong agenda or or handed out the wrong patronage. The the problem with these killings is that they're, it, it's very difficult to follow them from cradle to grave because the justice system is so in such a dire condition. So someone will... I mean, there's a typical um, repertoire to a political killing. A lot of them follow this. It's a scary number if you go through the news stories. You know, someone will arrive home, a car will arrive behind them outside the driveway and unload, you know, a, a slew of bullets into them. Alternatively, someone will be watching TV and someone will break in and unload a slew of bullets into them and leave. That kind of thing. Um, and... This will then parties will then respond by saying, "Well, we don't want to say that this was politically motivated." Um, the police will say, "We think it is politically motivated." It might then even be confirmed that it is politically motivated uh, if the thing ever gets to court. Um, but the person is only ever convicted of murder, and so it's very hard to actually get official stats on political assassinations because it's not a category. I mean, it's like the number of people who killed as witches in South Africa this year. Anecdotal research to me suggests it's about between 50 and 100 people every year, but you can never get official stats because a murder is a murder. So it's very hard to actually, unless you've read the court cases of each thing and got the motivation of each person to have a proper grip on how pervasive this stuff is. My, my estimation, yeah, it's, it's, it's 50 a year. Um, yeah, thereabouts. Why, uh, why the clamber to become? Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. It's it's about one a month. God, it's it's fifty over the last three or four years. I beg your pardon. All right, it's still uh, any number is 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 ridiculous actually uh, in a liberal democracy. What is the uh, the sort of hop? What is why are people literally then putting themselves at risk? Uh, you would obviously if I. We became a member of the ANC and I worked my way up. I would know at some point that I was risking my life going up against uh, an opposition member within the party for a particular post. Why are people so intent on getting these positions? Is it the access to, to money? Is, is, it, is it the power? 
Yeah, it's both those things. Money and prestige in an environment in which low self-esteem and and economic decay rule the roost. People will take what they can get. Also, there's the prospect of moving up. You know, if you if you get into the system, it's very hard to ever be demoted inside the ANC. I mean, as a matter of principle, they retain 60% of all councillors. So your odds of staying on for this being a long-term job are pretty high if you can get in. Um, the real thing about these assassinations for me is not so much the local government stuff, which is disturbing and worrying. It's it's where it goes to from here. And, you know, it could, I don't want to stick my neck out on this, but, uh, you know, the next 10 years or so, if this stuff is not arrested, it's not going to be local government councillors that are being killed alone. And when that happens, if a member of the executive is killed uh, or a high-profile national politician, that's when stuff goes seriously south very quickly. Do, do you find that the ANC are, are trying to, to solve this issue or do they sweep it away like most other things? I see no indication of them taking it seriously as a as as an accepted way or, or a growingly accepted way of dealing with political differences. Um, no, I mean, I, I can't speak for what they do behind the scenes, but they're normally pretty good at intimating at the kind of, uh, you know, reports they're writing and task teams they're managing and stuff. But I don't think they conceive of it as an ANC problem. They conceive of it all as individuals, and there's a lot of truth to that. Um, but you have to look at your system if it isn't, if the byproduct of people trying to get into your organisation is death, you, you have to. There has to be some internal reflection, and I don't see any of it. Yeah, does it happen to any other party? Or obviously, not on such a scale. But I mean, IFP. I believe back in the day. I don't know if it still happens now. Amongst the DA, oh. I doubt it. EFF. I think it might happen if it's not already happening. Yeah, look, it's particular to the IFP and the ANC. Um, I mean, I would say for every two ANC councillors that are killed, one IFP councillor is killed. And so a large number of these take place in KZN, but also up north, Limpopo and Pumalanga positions like, uh, provinces like that. Uh, no one's of any significance has died from an assassination that I know of in the DA or the EFF to date. They've been a lot of assault and uh, burning of houses and that kind of thing, but are not actual cross-party assassinations that I know of. I mean, there might have been, but there would have been only one or two. All right. Uh, I want to take you back uh, overseas. You have huge opposition to Brexit. Um, so our podcast is airing uh, the Tuesday before the vote. Um Tell us a bit about your opposition, because uh, both of us are quite uh, firmly in the Leave uh, camp. Right. Well, look, a lot of my positions are um, informed by, um, well, not informed by, I mean, I'm good friends with Ryan Coutier, who's the director of strategy for the Remain campaign. So, um I mean, I will admit that a lot of the literature and stuff that I read um, comes through him or via his Twitter account or from the main Remains account and stuff, and I haven't focused that hard on reading solely the Leave Perspectives thing. That said, um, I cannot 
see any economic argument that makes any sense to leave the EU. I, I cannot abide by or stand all this kind of nationalistic, it's all about being British and standing alone as a country stuff. The immigration facts and figures from what I can determine, have been skewed out of all proportion and misrepresented. I mean, a whole lot of this narrative, they sort of lumped together, you know, refugees and um, uh, people that are fleeing war and then claim that Turkey's going to send a whole lot of... I mean, Turkey's not even joining the EU. Um, And then there is just the politics of misrepresentation and demagoguery and populism that's epitomized by the likes of Farage and Johnson. Uh, And the combination of those makes me think this is a very bad idea. But if you look at um, especially what Daniel Hannan wrote, he's a a member of the European Parliament. So basically the the thing with with the EU, it's a a regulatory type of super state of sorts. So it's a government based around 500 million Europeans. And they somehow believe that, you know, the average Greek is the same as the German and the German is the same as the, the Portuguese and all that. Uh, all they seem to do is pass regulations about pillowcases and dishwashers and what, what sort of deodorants you must use and not use. There's a hell of a lot of regulation going on in the EU. Uh, in terms of trading block, it hasn't grown in 10 years. It's the only one not to grow in 10 years. Um, and and but but Gareth, for you though, surely you would want Britain to be self uh, self governing to some degree as as, as a democrat. What? Why? But, I mean, they, stand the idea of the nation states. Say again. I can't stand the idea of the nation states. It really drives me mad. Are you an anarchist like me? No states at all. Well, I wouldn't ever advocate for that. I don't think it's practically possible. But the idea that I have to be confined to a certain section of the world just because I live here is really appalling. Um, But whatever, that's a personal thing. Look, the EU doesn't just do regulations and stuff. I mean, it's responsible for negotiating, you know, very substantial trade agreements with the rest of the world. And if if Britain leaves it, they're going to have to renegotiate all of them. It's kind of like you're pulling your account out of Nedbank and then going to Nedbank and go, I'd like to talk about what interest rates you can offer me. Nedbank's going to go, no, sorry, dude. But the EU doesn't have trade agreements with China or America. And, you know, Switzerland is not part of the EU and has a huge amount of trade with Far the rest more trade of the world. In the UK. Like, I don't think the, I think, I think the benefits of the EU was great in the 1950s and 1960s, economically at least. But now it's easy to do business with anyone in the world with technology, right? You don't need to. Well, it's not, it's not easy because you then be competing with the EU. I mean, you're creating a competitor. Why would, why would any country do a deal with you when the EU is managing, you know, the, can offer you far better prices and products at far better, you know, agreements or arrangements or whatever. But you don't need a trade agreement to trade with another country, right? Uh, if I sell umbrellas in South Africa and someone in Brazil wants them, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be a trade agreement. We just, the companies agree and I ship it over and he pays me and there's no, there's no need for a trade agreements. That's okay. also very, very, in my opinion, very archaic thinking. Uh, technology has dispelled the need for trade agreements in general. I would argue. I don't know about that. I mean, look, I'm not going to wage into saying that I'm not an expert on, but um, I mean, I have a fundamental problem, you know, with um, trade barriers and tariffs and that kind of stuff. Um, But I don't have a problem with, um, you know, reasonable discussion to come at a 
consensus agreement that works out for more people than it does uh, individual countries as as their whole, individual countries on their own. Um, I think I, I think there's 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 relatively wide agreement that. Uh, Britain going out of the EU does knock their economy a bit. The the problem is is there's fear mongering on both sides. So the the in campaign will have you believe that uh, we leave and the economy virtually collapses. Uh, the art campaign will tell you, you know, one to two percent, uh, which we will recover in a couple of years. I, the truth is probably uh, somewhere in between. I, I think the same argument uh, is being made. I, I'm not emotionally invested, so whether they leave or not, I couldn't care. I think that they should, but. Um, if they don't, I, uh, no big deal. Um, with regards to the immigrants, it's the same argument. So uh, the leave campaign will have you have you believe that uh, if they don't leave tomorrow, uh, half a million Syrian refugees are going to arrive at the, in the UK and start raping all the women. Uh, that's the kind of fear mongering nonsense that 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 some of the leave campaigners are are, are doing. And, uh, the point is, is there are irrational people on both sides. So you've got Nigel Farage, who's very much uh, being uh, put up as a poster child of, of leave. But there's lots of rational people who aren't like him on that side. And on the inside, there's there's the same problem. Um, the inside says uh, there's no problem whatsoever with 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 the immigrant issue. And and I think that the 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 statement that says, look, we at least want to be able to decide that this year we'd be unable to take more than 50,000 people, but the EU says we have to take 200,000. I don't think that's an unreasonable thing for a government to want to do in a nation state, given that they know how much income they've got from taxes and what they can provide for people, including their own citizens. Look, I mean, there's another point to be made is, you know, I, I don't suppose my column today helped as much because it was pretty fundamental, but, you know, it's just three days to go until the vote or whatever. Um... The EU's got problems. I mean, I'm not suggesting that it's, um, you know, a wonderful... And I, and I think even the Remain campaign would acknowledge that, that uh, it is, a, you know, an over-bureaucratized and there are, as you said, too many regulations and stuff. Um, it's just that the benefit of being part of it as opposed to not... It's also a decision you can't go back on, you know. Um, if you do, if you go if you get out of the EU and then do a whole lot of things and they don't work out you pretty screwed then a massive risk and this is the big criticism of the Remain campaign is that the leave okay so let's say leave has a case for leaving and it's got a whole lot of things like you've said you can organize your urge agreements you can trade with America you can do a whole lot of stuff they can't say what those would look like or what terms they would get because it's an unknown massive risk and. I don't think it is unreasonable to ask the average person or at least to expect the average person to want to know what the details are. They can't provide them. Um, and that's a big problem for me. Is it? I mean, yeah, I, I, I understand your point. I understand your point. I just think, I mean, personally, the EU is like a huge Marxist <laughs> You know, monolith that no one elects, and that tells you how to, uh, you know, how to use your vacuum cleaner. It's, it's. Well, and now they want to start a European army. Yeah, now they want to start. It's just, it's just a bunch of bureaucrats that no one has ever elected, who have control of 500 million people, and who are very well, anti-democratic. They, they are very anti-democratic. Yeah, but who who votes for them? No one, no one has voted sure. for anyone. Then they. Daniel had 
Daniel Hannan makes the point, if you don't win an election, you go to Brussels. And then you get on the, on the council. <laughs> like Peter Mann, like all the old Tony Blairites, you know, they lost the election. They all went to Brussels and they all got a, a seat on the council. But oh, anyway, anyway. Can, can I, I, I want to get one last thing before we let you go. Um, polling. So uh, we like to use polling data because at least sometimes it, it's data. Um, but polling data seems to have gotten things wrong recently so i uh, look at the the uk elections um in which they said uh, that labor and uh, the, and the conservatives were neck and neck it was too close to call they got that completely wrong um they got donald trump wrong uh in terms of that he was going to go out and you know we'd probably have jeb bush uh or, or, or ted cruz or someone like that um and now we've got a, a poll that came out last week. The newspapers have jumped on it saying that the DA is beating the ANC in PE in Schwane and they are neck and neck in Johannesburg. Uh, and okay, obviously some of it's to do with uh, that it's not only the DA, it's the DA and the EFF or the UDM in, in PE. But the bottom line is, is it's a poll predicting that the ANC may even lose three metros, which I, 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 even in, you know, Moosey's wet dreams, I don't think he thinks they'll win all three metros. So what do you think of, of, of that kind of data? Look, those polls, particularly by um, Ipsos and the like, are deeply problematic for a number of reasons. First of all, they don't. Uh, differentiate between registered and non-registered voters. So the sample is everyone, whether you're registered to vote or not. Uh, they usually are uh, biased towards urban metros and don't have a properly representative sample in terms of rural voters. Uh, the margin of error is usually above what is generally acceptable. Usually you should have sort of 3% there around 5 or above. Um and also the question is usually just a standalone question on a survey. So uh, it will just be one question, who do you intend to vote for in the next election? In a survey, which is actually commercially paid for, and, and they've just tagged a question on the end as a part, you know, it can be about toothpaste or anything. Um, so they're, they're often wrong. Uh, and there's a large history of these polls being fundamentally wrong, some some hugely wrong. I mean, I tweeted an example from 2009, I think it was, where Ipsos released a poll about six months before the election where the opening headline of the Sunday Times, the opening paragraph of the Sunday Times story was, a new poll reveals that ANC and the DA are neck and neck. Um, so it was exactly the same kind of thing. However, that all said, you can, because they're, whatever the errors are in the polls, they are replicated in each poll consistently. You can use the polls against each other as a measure. Uh, and Ipsos does that in the way it presents its data because it shows its own polls, what they said before in previous years. And I, and I think you can say as far as the trend goes that things are closer uh, now than they've ever been between those three metros. I think the metro where they are legitimately the closest is PE, and that's the one where the DA has a real prospect of bringing the ANC below 51. I think they have a chance in Chwani, but it's less of a chance, and I think they have a tiny outside chance in Joburg um, in in that order. Um, but that's based on a lot of anecdotal stuff, so I wouldn't use that as a scientific analysis either. Yeah, I mean... But the August 3rd elections will probably be the most important elections for all three so-called major parties. 
uh, probably for the first time, it'll be maybe a proper, the first democratic election we ever have in, in its, in a competitive sense, I'm saying. Yeah, I think it's very, very important. And, and the, it's interesting to look at it from a risk perspective because I think the only two parties that can suffer negative consequences if things don't go according to plan are the EFF and, I mean, are the DA and the ANC. I think the EFF can approach this election without a worry in the world. I don't think there can be a bad outcome for it. Hmm. Um, it it's going to grow. It might double. It could be the kingmaker in certain places. It might not. It's all on the. I mean, the media is infatuated with um, Alema at the moment, and I see no sign of it stopping. Um, but for the ancient DA, the, the price is much bigger. What do you, What do you think? Because uh, you're quite balanced. I hate that word, but you are quite balanced in in terms of uh, how you view politics. So you you're not, you know, just pro DA or, or pro ANC. What do you think is the best outcome in terms of for the country? Uh, in these elections, would the best outcome be for the DA to to clean sweep as much as they could, or or would it be good for the ANC to to kind of get a fright and 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 maybe pick up their you know pull up their socks? Yes, look, I think um, uh, the the closer you get to um, a balance of power at national level, the better for a democracy and the and the prospect of change. So anything that gets you closer to that, I'm in favour of. Um, I think the DA needs to win another metro just for the opposition, the sake of having a credible opposition in South Africa, because if it doesn't, it risks fragmenting and, 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 um, losing votes over time and actually shrinking. And that'll do harm to the whole kind of thing. It needs to keep the momentum going, but that's all towards establishing a kind of not necessarily a plurality. I don't mind if they're three parties or two or whatever, but, chance of power changing hands uh, and I think that's the most important outcome now alright cool so thank you that's um, well over an hour uh, to our uh, fans who've been requesting that we don't stop at an hour we didn't um, so thanks thanks for, for, for sticking with us um, and for all the really interesting commentary and debate really appreciate it um, not at all thank you very much for having me man yeah, so uh, obviously anyone who's listening, you can find Gareth on Twitter. It's Gfan Onselin. Uh, you want to direct us to your uh, your poll account as well? Uh, yeah, it's at SA Daily Poll. Yeah, some some interesting polls. Some just about sports and others about serious stuff. Um, although in South Africa we take the sport very 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 seriously sometimes. I don't know why, but um, and as well read Gareth's column. Uh, when does it appear? Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Yeah, in the right. in the business day, um, you will often online. Yes, on the business day online. See, um, Ramon's a proper groupie. <laughs> All right, so so um, a- a- absolutely. Thanks for joining us. Your columns in the business day always very insightful and uh, very thoughtful, whether you agree with them or not. Um, and uh, we hope to have you back in future. Thanks very much, guys. Th- thanks, Gareth. Cheers, eh? All right, Ramon. So that's uh, another show down. Um, any uh, any final words? Any final words? Um, no. <laughs> final words. Yes, you are about to be executed. No, I've been chatting for an hour and a half, uh, so I'm a bit knackered at the moment. I don't know how Joe Rogan does it for three hours. But if you do like the longer podcast, let us know. Uh, we will keep the format if it suits 
other people. And yeah, we'll be back next week. Next week's a show just with us uh, talking yeah, about the month that, that, that's passed. And uh, the show after that, uh, Gad Sad. So, uh, we're going international we're, and on YouTube, by the way. We're going international on YouTube, and that should be really exciting. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll uh, catch you next time. Cliff Central Revolution. I've got something important to tell you. Cliffcentral.com.